Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, our hosts are speaking with Dr. Rick Strassman, American Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine and the author of the book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. After a 20-year lag, Dr. Strassman was the first person in the United States to again study psychedelics on humans back in the early 1990s, which led him to write his now well-known book on the study's subject matter. One quick note about today's show, there are a few points where Dr. Strassman's audio quality just gets bad. We try our best to conduct face-to-face interviews with the Green Rush when possible, which yields the best sound quality, but sometimes that's just not possible, and internet connections are a fantastic second choice. But as we hear in today's show, sometimes connections can get spotty. Rather than edit out the quick few offending choppy spots, it made sense to just keep them in, as you can usually pick up on what Dr. Strassman is saying, even as audio pixelation sets in. Our apologies there. The good news is that everything that Dr. Strassman has to share is fairly fascinating, so it all washes out in the positive in the end. Now, on to our conversation with Dr. Rick Strassman. Depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, OCD. Nearly 40% of all adults around the world suffer from some form of mental illness. The National Alliance on Mental Health estimates that untreated mental illness costs the United States up to $300 billion every year due to losses in productivity. Mental health drugs like SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors such as Prozac, Zoloft, and Paxil, along with benzodiazepines such as Xanax, Valium, and Klonopin, are the top two or three drugs prescribed annually in the United States. We are a nation and a society and a world that is facing a massive mental health crisis. More and more people are living isolated, lonely lives, which are the number one causes of untreated mental health illnesses. And the drugs that are prescribed treat the symptoms of mental illness, but not the underlying cause. And for some patients, these drugs do provide help. But for many people, they aren't even a Band-Aid. And the reason is that these drugs, the SSRIs and the benzodiazepines, which are unbelievably addictive and unbelievably difficult to get off of, don't treat the underlying causes or traumas that lead to mental illness. Well, back in the 1950s, research was done at NYU, Johns Hopkins, and a few other universities on the value and impact of psychedelics such as LSD or psilocybin or magic mushrooms for treating issues like alcohol addiction, depression, anxiety, all of these issues that we all suffer from. And the results of those trials that worked with literally tens of thousands of patients over almost 20 years were incredibly promising. But in the 1960s, those drugs escaped the clinic and were brought out into the mainstream by Timothy Leary. We've all heard the phrase, tune in, turn on, and drop out. Well, that scared so many people. 
including the president of the United States, Richard Nixon. And by 1970, Nixon had declared his war on drugs. And psychedelics, along with cannabis, were assigned the DEA schedule status number one, meaning that these compounds were deemed to have no medical value, have a high incidence for addiction or misuse, and as a result, all research ended. Well, today's episode is different from nearly every other one that we have done to date. While for more than 100 shows, Anne and I have focused almost exclusively on the business of cannabis, today we're looking at psychedelics. And yes, I know that we spoke with Ronan Levy, CEO of Field Trip Ventures, now Field Trip Psychedelics, and full disclosure, Field Trip is a client. Well, today I am talking with Dr. Rick Strassman, American Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. After 20 years of intermission in research, Dr. Strassman was the first person in the United States to undertake human research with psychedelics, hallucinogenic or other entheogenic substances, with his research on NM-dimethyltryptamine, or NNDMT, in the early 1990s. So why am I talking with a doctor who did research on psychedelics more than 20 years ago? Today, we are in what is known as the third wave of psychedelic research. A couple of years ago, Michael Pollan released his book, How to Change Your Mind. And if you're not familiar with Michael Pollan, he's one of the most famous and influential investigative journalists who has been studying food and plants for 30 plus years. And if you haven't read How to Change Your Mind, I strongly encourage you to do so. Following Michael Pollan's book, there has been a massive renaissance and attention being paid to psychedelics and their impact on curing and not treating mental disorders. And this is all thanks to Dr. Strassman, who opened the door. And now organizations such as MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, Atai Life Sciences, Compass Pathways, have all been working with the FDA to increase studies into these molecules. And MAPS has moved the ball so far forward that the FDA has granted MDMA, or ecstasy, breakthrough status, and they are in phase three trials for the treatment of PTSD. Psilocybin, or magic mushrooms, are in phase 2B trials for depression. Universities such as NYU, the University of Wisconsin, the Imperial College in London, and UCLA are all doing cutting-edge research. And back in September of 2019, and I don't know when you're listening to this because podcast life has no time, or as Anne says, time is a circular bagel, kind of comes around and goes around. Well, back in September, Johns Hopkins received a $17 million grant spearheaded by Tim Ferriss to create the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. All of this is a result of the work of Dr. Strassman and what he did back in the 1990s at the University of New Mexico with a couple of hundred patients. It may be hard to believe, but there is a better chance that psychedelics will receive federal approval for medicinal use before cannabis does, hence wanting to talk with Dr. Rick Strassman. So with that, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Strassman to the Green Rush. So Dr. Strassman, thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. Let's jump right into it. Why do you think psychedelics are so in vogue right now? Well, you know, psychedelics have all, have, have always been uh, in, in vogue. Uh, with a certain you know, segment of both the lay and scientific community, and their use has stayed pretty constant. Uh, 
over the last you know several decades uh even after they were scheduled in you know 1970 uh the the prevalence rate of their use among young adults has stayed pretty steady um but uh i think that with the resurgence of research which began in the early 1990s late 1980s uh and um because of the lessons learned from the first wave of clinical studies uh, helping people avoid some of the mistakes uh, from the first uh, group of uh, researchers. Uh, uh, There's been a gradual mainstreaming of psychedelics into the biomedical worldview. and you know, they became a lot more popular, or at least you know, DMT did with the publication of our book in 2000. Um, and uh, you know, that was still a kind of a niche group of lay and you know, scientific aficionados, uh, um, as it were. Um, our studies uh, wrapped up in 1995. And also occurred at a you know relatively small university uh, without a major you know PR department. <laughs> you know so when you know Johns Hopkins began doing studies and you know publishing with you know their you know PR machine, uh, they you know those uh, <laughs> studies got a lot. Those studies got a lot more you know, media attention, um, and the mainstreaming picked up a lot more quickly and uh, I think over the last you know couple of years uh, one could point to Michael Pollan's book uh, changing your mind as uh, especially uh, speeding up the mainstreaming of their use both you know recreationally and scientifically the Michael Pollan book is what got me really paying attention um, to the research on psychedelics um, and the work that he cited from from NYU, from Johns Hopkins, from Imperial College shows that these molecules have tremendous problem promise, excuse me, in treating the mass mental health issues that we're facing as a society. And there are claims that, you know, taking one or two guided psychedelic trips can cure PTSD or addiction. Can you discuss how psychedelics can provide a cure versus providing a treatment? Like, how, how do these things cure addiction? How do they cure depression or anxiety? Uh, well, I think uh, to refer to any cure of mental illness is a little bit hyperbolic. Um, you can... Um, make a major improvement, a dent. You could even uh, put somebody into remission where they no longer have got symptoms, uh, but the person still has got uh, the depressive disorder or the bipolar disorder or you know, the addictive disorder. Uh, it's you know, just in remission. Uh, um, it isn't like uh, an infection, let's say, where uh, you treat with anti biotics and the bacteria are gone um, but still uh, you could see remarkable improvements in a number of conditions 
with properly guided uh, psychedelic-assisted you know, psychotherapy. Well, you know, how do psychedelics work? Um, well, I think the first order of business is to make the point that, uh, you know, there isn't anything inherently therapeutic about psychedelics. Uh, they are only tools, you know, so you can point to the improvement in depression or addiction uh, with current clinical research, but you can also point to how Charles Manson used, you know, psychedelics to turn, uh, you know, pre-existing psychopaths into, you know, serial diabolic, you know, killers uh, using LSD in, uh, I mean, another, you know, kind of model of, uh, you know, psychedelic-assisted, uh, you know, change in personality or enhancement of the kinds of uh, behaviors, feelings, or, you know, thoughts that uh, are, you know, sought after by people who engage in those, um, you know, kinds of, you know, therapies or, you know, processes. Uh, you know, so... Um, can, can you talk, can you explain the, the, the function to it? Because, you know, you know, when we read Michael Pollan's book, he, he takes some time and others talk about the default mode network. Can you explain what the default mode network is and then, you know, what happens when you, when you have a psychedelic experience? Uh, you know, to be honest, I, I have not, you know, followed the electrophysiology and the brain imaging, you know, research all that carefully. Um, okay. I right, so think though to, you know, to, I guess, express it in kind of blunt or crude terms of, uh, you know, the default mode network is what establishes our, or what, you know, regulates or mediates our, you know, sense of self, um, you know, who we are, what we're capable of, uh, what our beliefs, feelings, ideas are our conceptual ego-based, you know, framework of uh, our interactions with ourselves and with the external world. Um, and uh, at least, you know, my understanding of the effect of, you know, psychedelics on the default mode network is that it, uh, you know, loosens those bonds, as it were, and makes one more receptive to uh, ideas or beliefs or, you know, feelings that, may be potential, but have not yet become actual. You know, so you could actually uh, invoke the default mode, you know, network in, <clears throat> uh, in all manner of use and outcomes of using psychedelics. The, you know, the you know, Charles Manson model, let's say, and the mystical model, uh, which has been you know, touted by the Hopkins group. Um, you know, so what is important to keep in mind is that, you know, psychedelics work on the person. They work on the mind. Uh, that's why they're called, you know, psychedelic mind manifesting or mind disclosing. You know, so it's the, you know, raw materials that the, you know, psychedelic is engaging. The, uh, you know, personality of the individual their expectations, their hopes, their fears, their experiences, and, you know, those of the people around them who they're taking the drugs with, as well as the you know, physical environment. You know, those are 
you know, divided into, you know, set and uh, the setting. You know, yeah, the we'll, set is the uh, individual and, you know, the setting is the, uh, you know, is, is you know, pretty much everything else. So, you know, there was a lot of research that was done on LSD, on mescaline, on psilocybin in the 1950s and the 1960s. And, and as you said, in 1970, President Nixon declared the war on drugs and and made cannabis and psilocybin and and a lot of other drugs Schedule One, including the, the drug that you worked with, DMT. Can we go into the way back time machine for a moment? You know, it's the early '90s. You're at a small school in New Mexico. How were you able to get the FDA and the DEA to approve your research? Did you did you actually dose somebody in D.C. or like can you take us through the process of how you got got a yes? Well, you know I you know, chuckled when you mentioned in you know, I dose uh, I I think that with the new generation of regular uh, you know people from. Uh, I'm not you know, saying that anybody at FDA or DEA was experienced, you know, taking psychedelics, but you know, nevertheless, uh, they came or the regulators, the bureaucrats I was working with, uh, were a you know different you know, generation than those that uh, were overseeing the Controlled Substances Act in you know the late you know 1960s, early 1970s. Um, you know, so they were more open to these drugs being studied than the, you know, than was the case, you know, 20 years earlier. Um, it, you know, took me two years of working with the DEA and the FDA to get my, you know, permits. Mm -hmm. um, the main article was to establish communication channels between FDA and the DEA. It had been 20 years, you know, since anybody had you know basically applied to do human research with these drugs um, and uh, there were all these new regulations in place um, the main problem was for me to get you know my hands on uh, uh, you know DMT um, I had to find you know somebody that would be allowed legally to make it and you know once I had it I could then, you know, put it through the, you know, paces that the FDA required, you know, so it was a bit of a catch 22. I couldn't, you know, begin the study without FDA approval. FDA approval required that it was a pure, clean drug, but I couldn't, you know, possess the drug to put it through its, you know, paces without, you know, permission from the DEA, but, but the DEA wouldn't give me, you know, permission until number one, I, I found somebody to make the drug, and number two, I got FDA approval, which required, you know, <laughs> possessing the drug. So it was pretty. Uh, what's the word? You know, convoluted. It, it was, was a. It was literally what the Joseph Heller catch twenty two, right? I mean, you you can't get the drug until you can prove that the drug is clean. You can't prove the drug is clean until you get it. I mean, it just it's this circular. I mean, was that structure? Do you think set up that way to discourage researchers like you from from actually getting the approval to do this research? No, uh, on the 
contrary, I think everybody wanted me to do this study, uh, but it was just you know bollock step in in uh, the paperwork. Um, you know, before I gave my first dose of DMT, I got two grants, one from the Scottish Rite Foundation for Schizophrenia Research, and one from NIDA. I actually got a grant from NIH, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, to do my DMT study before I got the drug. You know, so you know, scientists wanted me, you know, to do this work. The government wanted it done. Uh, the you know private sector wanted it done, uh, but it was just uh, working through all of the jungle and the you know morass of paperwork and regulations, which were you know set up after the controlled you know after the con- um, after the Controlled Substances Act, which you know had never been tested. You know those mm-hmm. you know regulations were. You know, never applied because it, um, you know, because nobody asked to apply them. You know, so it was just a steady chipping away against you know the edifice. Uh, and you know, finally in November, you know, 1990, I got a you know fax from the FDA saying, you know, go ahead, you know, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Why did you pick DMT? And then can you describe what happens to a patient? when they take it, you know, because there had been a lot of research done on LSD and there had been a lot of research done on psilocybin, but DMT was not a molecule that was researched very much prior to 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 you. So why this drug? And then what happens when you take it? Well, yeah, there were three main reasons I chose DMT uh, instead of LSD or psilocybin or, you know, uh, you know, one, it was short, you know, short acting. And uh, I knew that because my study was going to be, uh, you know, psychopharmacological, you know, quite intrusive, invasive in you know, some ways, uh, and would have to occur in a hospital on a research unit, you know, that if, you know, people had adverse, uh, you know, reactions, you know, to the drug, uh, that, uh, that um, you know, they would be short-lived. Um, another reason uh, is its obscurity at the time. You know, nobody really knew about DMT. And uh, I thought that any new research with, you know, psychedelics, especially well-known ones, would garner a lot of media scrutiny. You know, so, you know, DMT wasn't anywhere uh, as well-known as LSD or psilocybin. Um, you know, it's, you know uh, speaking of LSD, I you know, psilocybin, the, you know, short duration of action of, you know, DMT uh, stood in marked, you know, contrast to, you know, those of LSD or... And how how long is the duration for... Um, you, you know, DMT, or you smoke it, but in a hospital, uh, you know, setting it needed to be injected. Uh, it's about a half hour as compared to you know, eight to 10 to 12 hours with LSD, you know, six to eight, you know, to 10 hours with psilocybin. Um, And I also chose, you know, DMT because it was endogenous. It's made in the human body. And, uh, you know, there were some fascinating questions raised uh, in the, you know, 1960s, early 1970s about the role of endogenous DMT in, you know, naturally occurring psychosis. You know, perhaps if you blocked, you know, DMT's effects, you know, somehow in schizophrenics, it would help improve their symptoms. 
Um, and I also, you know, chose it from the vantage point of, you know, drug abuse, uh, which was one of the you know, selling points in my, you know, grant application to NIDA, is that, you know, people continued using psychedelics. Um, you know, DMT is, you know, the prototypical, you know, tryptamine hallucinogen. And if we understood its mechanisms of action, that would help provide insights into the mechanisms of more widely used, you know, psychedelics, you know, like LSD. Can you describe what happens to a patient when you dose them or when somebody smokes it? What What is the, the effect? Um, you know, one thing it's, uh, you know, helpful to you know, differentiate uh, between the idea of a patient and a normal volunteer. All of our studies took place in, you know, normal volunteers. You know, they weren't sick, they weren't mm -hmm. depressed, they weren't you know, suffering from, you know, terminal kinds of illness. They weren't, you know, seeking anything, you know, other than perhaps some increased insight or some curiosity. But, you know, they were mostly participating out of... Uh, a you know sense of altruism as opposed to a you know sense of you know suffering, um, as com you know as 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 compared to patients who have got you know diseases or you know disorders that they're coming in uh, to be treated for, you know so all of our uh, you know volunteers were you know psychologically healthy you know physically healthy they weren't abusing drugs, um, and. Uh, you know, the expectation wasn't that, you know, they would be uh, freed of a particular, you know, disorder. You know, so we didn't really prepare people that much. We didn't, you know, do the 10 to 12 hours of pre-session, you, know, you know, psychotherapy, for example, which occurs in most of the, you know, psychotherapy studies, which are, you know, going on, you know, nowadays. Um I just told you know people it's fast, it's short. Uh, you may f you know feel as if you've died, but you know don't worry. You know nobody has, and if you get into any problems, we've got a you know code team on call. Um, you know, but other than that, we didn't really uh, educate people. You know, you know this is what's going to happen. This is the way you deal with it. Uh, you know, DMT has a long history of, you know, this or that. It was just, you know, go in, you know, have your own trip, you know, keep your eyes open, so to speak, and report, you know, back to us, you know, what happened. Um, you know, so uh, uh, the, you know, typical uh, effect of DMT in our volunteers when a big, you know, dose was injected is that people started, you know, feeling you know, something within a heartbeat or two. Uh, the room started to, you know, pixelate. Uh, you know, there was what uh, volunteers described as a rush, which was a buildup of inner, you know, tension and anxiety, a uh, great, you know, feeling of speed and acceleration. Uh, there would be a high-pitched, you know, crackling you know, sound uh, oftentimes. The, um, the rush lasted about a minute, maybe 90 seconds, and uh, would culminate in the, you know, separation or the, you know, feeling of the, you know, separation of the volunteers' mind from their bodies. They would no longer be aware of their bodies. And, you know, this was quite profound, actually, because we 
would check blood pressure at the two-minute point and at the you know five-minute point, and no volunteer, almost anyway, you know, no volunteer, you know, felt that mechanical squeezing, uncomfortable, you know, blood pressure cuff inflate at the two-minute point. Most you know people didn't you know feel it at the you know five-minute point either. Uh, you know, so the you know dissociation was profound. Um, the you know visual effects are quite striking, and uh, we discovered early on that those visual effects would overlay the visual world of the room in which the study was taking place. So we figured out pretty soon that we needed to keep people's eyes closed, and to encourage that, we you know gave everybody uh, you know those you know black eye shades you know to put on you know, before we gave the drug. Um, you know, so at the, you know, two minute point or so, you know, people, you know, would dissociate and enter into this world of light, uh, rapidly spinning and morphing, uh, quite, um, strike, you know, quite bright. Uh, it was, uh, intensely saturated. Uh, they felt as if they were, uh, in a, world of, you know, sentience and intelligence and of information, you know, sometimes that you know, feeling would coalesce into the perception of discrete or, you know, discernible, you know, beings, you know, things that we ended up calling beings, which could, you know, take any manner of shape or form, uh, humanoid or plant or insect or even, you know, sentient apart, uh, you know, buildings or furniture. Um, you know, so, you know, there was an interaction uh, between the volunteer and that, you know, sentience in the state. You know, there was the maintenance of a personal self, a personal ego with which one negotiated that state, interacted with the beings, looked left, looked right, um, would ask questions. Uh, so they were, so the, the them of them was present in this experience? They were aware of still being themselves, they just were in a different world. Is that is that the right way to, to describe it? Absolutely, they were themselves in a different world. Uh, you know, both the volunteers and I expected the wild ego death default mode. You know, network blowout kind of uh, experience, which all of us were kind of you know weaned on in our twenties. Uh, you know, the mystical experience, the enlightenment of Buddhism, a Kensho, yeah. uh, you know, no form, you know, feeling, consciousness, perception, or cognition. Uh, but I'll tell you, in almost, you know, five dozen volunteers, the only, you know, the only person with that kind of an experience was a religious studies major in college who had always wanted that kind of an experience. Um you know, so I was expecting the inherent nature of the drug to lead to a particular kind of experience, the enlightenment experience. I was trained and studied Buddhism for a couple of decades. Um, most of our volunteers were you know, meditators of an Eastern kind of tradition. Uh, but uh, instead of the drug possessing an inherent effect or an inherent experience, the drug just you know, shone an atomic spotlight on the character of the person. Um, so, uh, you know, that was, oh, okay. You, you know, so anyway, uh, yeah, you know, so, you, you know, people start coming 
down at about the you know five minute point, uh, maybe you know seven eight minutes. Uh, they start to you know feel their bodies coalesce. Uh, they're able you know you know they're uh, conscious of their breathing, which they weren't for five to eight minutes or you know ten minutes or so. Um, you know, they would take a deep breath, you know, move their fingers, move their toes. Um, in a way, it was like they were being, you know, reborn, reconstituted. Um, yeah, and, you know, they would uh, start to, you know, talk at the 20-minute, 25-minute point. Uh, you know, some, you know, people wanted to stay, you know, still, stay silent for, you know, 30, you know, 40-minute point. You know, we would usually you know, rouse uh, people at around the, you know, 40 minute point if they hadn't uh, started to speak on their own again. Uh, and, you know, th- you know, they'd be answering questionnaires, drinking tea, eating breakfast at about the you know, 40 f- or, you know, 45 minute point uh, in, in most cases. Do you see any medical value in, in, in the drug that you studied? Uh, yeah, I do. Although it's not quite as straight, you know, forward as the case with the longer acting orally active drugs like, you know, psilocybin and LSD. Um, you know, first of all, it's quite, you know, short acting and, uh, there's not much time to orient yourself in that space. Uh, it's, you know, hard to establish communication with the beings, uh, the, you know, language, of interaction wasn't especially obvious to the volunteers in their relation, you know, to the beings. And by the time they started, you know, getting their bearings, they came down, you know, so that's one of the problems is it's quite a short duration of action, you know, but nevertheless, I mean, I've gotten 10,000, 12,000 emails, you know, from people since the DMT book came out and, uh, and that book is called, that's DMT, The Spirit Molecule, right? Uh, right. It came out in early 2001. Yeah, I just want to make sure you get a chance to plug it. Right, right. And I'd also like to, you know, plug the independent, you know, documentary that was, you know, based on our research. Uh, it's also called The Spirit Molecule. Um, I think it's, you can't uh, stream it anymore on you know, Netflix, but I think that's because, you know, Warner Brothers bought it back or took it back. It's on, I watched it on, it's on YouTube. It's available on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. You can watch it on YouTube and once, you know, the Warner streaming service gets up and running, uh, it'll you know, probably be streamable there too. Um, you know, so I've, you know, gotten a fair number of emails from people who have smoked DMT once and uh, they stopped using drugs or they stopped drinking or their depression just, uh, you know, just evaporated. Uh, you know, so even a one major, you know, DMT experience can uh, make a huge, you know, difference in you know, selected individuals. You know, you know, but I would say in most you know, cases, the um, brief duration is a cap. Um, we gave uh, big, you know, doses of DMT, you know, four times in a morning, uh, in what we call the tolerance study to see if closely spaced repeated dosing would reduce the, uh, you know, the effects of DMT. You know, with LSD, you give it every day or you take it every day. It just stops working after the third or the fourth day. Just, you know, no effect, you know, hardly at all. You know, same with, you know, psilocybin. You know, but that had 
hadn't been established with um, um, with DMT, even in cats giving it every you know two hours for 21 days straight, there wasn't any tolerance. Wait, wait, wait! You dosed a you, you dosed a cat? Well, you know there were studies you know trying to establish DMT you know tolerance in uh, the 19 in uh, the 1970s, and you know there was a study at the NIH uh, in the early 70s. Uh, no, 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 no. You know that study was a case western i know this stuff is that this is serious but but what does a cat look like when it's tripping well you've got you know certain criteria to determine if uh, you know drug is you know hallucinogenic in lower animals uh there's a whole number of criteria of you know you know f- uh you know for mice and you know for rats uh you know cats weren't studied as much as rodents but uh you could determine, I forget, you know, like splayed paws, for example, uh, in a cat, or uh, it would be playing with imaginary mice, let's say, or, you know, hallucinated mice. Uh, their, you know, paws might, you know, quiver, let's say, or they might, you know, shake themselves as, uh, you know, like it, um, uh, uh, you know, they might, you know, uh, well, well, they might, you know, shake as if, you know, they were, you know, shaking water off of themselves. Um, you know, so there are a you know, number of, you know, tests for, you know, psychedelic, uh, you know, drug effects in lower animals. Um, yeah, you know, so there was a study, I think, you know, Domino uh, in Ann Arbor, actually, you know, gave, um, you, you know, DMT to a cat for 21 straight days every two hours, and they were not able to demonstrate tolerance. You know, so we, you know, figured in humans, well, we could only give it every half hour because, you know, people are still, you know, stoned at the, you know, 20-minute point. Um, and we figured, you know, four doses was, you know, plenty, you know, for, you know, in the morning. Um, you know, so number one, there was no tolerance. You know, people got as high on the fourth dose as the first one. And, you know, number two, you know, there was this interesting, you know, continuity in the experiences from the first to the you know second you know to the third and fourth trips, uh, you know so the you know psychological you know processes that were engaged in the volunteer the first you know time you know they come down we would talk about their experience for you know, five or ten minutes you know get them ready you know for dose number two you know they go up there you know process come down and you know we repeated it you know four times in the morning you know so. Uh, you know, people were able to work through, you know, psychological issues that they were, you know, working on in their, you know, normal lives like work or divorce or child rearing or, uh, you know, things like that. You know, so, you know, repeated, you know, dosing is uh, one, you know, possibility to, to take advantage of potential therapeutic effects of DMT. You know, the other is a continuous infusion study, which I proposed at the end of the DMT book. And uh, it's being worked out, you know, right now at the Imperial College Group. Right, I you know, saw where you that give a continuous. That somebody you can you can dose somebody and they can they can be in the DMT state for an hour or more. That's that's. Uh, well, you know, theoretically, you know, you know, for hours or for days or you know, for however you know long, because there is no tolerance. Uh, you know, so you you could keep people in that state for as long as you'd want, but you could also, you know, you know, bring them out of it. 
uh, quite you know quickly, like within a few minutes. Uh, once you you know turn off the infusion, you know. So in a way, uh, once that continuous infusion model is perfected, it will have advantages over you know giving an oral you know dose of LSD or of you know psilocybin, you know because you can interrupt the trip and you know uh, speak with the person in a you know sober state and say mm-hmm. well you know you know what just happened and you know what was the uh, you know what kind of obstacles were you encountering or what kind of breakthrough did you have or what kind of questions weren't you able to address you know so then you could put them you know back in that state you know right away uh, and uh, I think you could get a lot of work done with that continuous infusion model that wouldn't be you know feasible once you've swallowed the pill let's say for LSD I mean you're in that state there's not much you know coming down you know psilocybin you know is a, a you know comparable effect um, you know you know there is an orally active you know preparation of you know DMT out there too it's called ayahuasca uh, which is a combination of two plants you know from the Amazon one contains DMT and the other contains uh, an inhibitor of the enzyme, which otherwise would break down DMT in the stomach. So, you know, so if you combine the two plants, one with DMT and one with the enzyme inhibitor, it allows the DMT to be absorbed from the gut into the bloodstream and gives you a you know fairly long you know duration uh, you know DMT experience, you know four to you know six hours or so. And, uh, you know, there's a slew of, you know, field information out there of empirical studies, you know, demonstrating uh, if, you know, uh, you know, comparable, you know, beneficial um, effects of, um, of ayahuasca in a, you know, number of conditions, uh, you know, comparable to those of, you know, psilocybin. Uh, you, you had mentioned um, a few moments ago talking about the ability to pull um, – somebody who is going through a, you know, a, a, a continual infusion of DMT and stopping it and, and asking them, can you talk about the concept of in integration? Um, because earlier you said, you know, these, these drugs are not the cure. It's part of a holistic package of care. So talk, can you talk about the work that needs to be done after somebody has a psycho, psychedelic experience to make sure that that person really gets the long-term benefit and not, not just had a, an interesting trip. Yeah, well, the integration you know, phase is the you know uh, it's the you know third of you know three you know, le- you know psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. The you know first is you know the educational aspect. In a way, is indoctrination. You're being indoctrinated into a certain view of how psychedelics work, what they do, what to expect, you know what to uh, you know what's the best approach to optimizing your outcome. Um, you know, you, you obtain a vocabulary, um, you learn some tools about what to do in the state once you're administered the drug. Um, you know, so for example, you're encouraged, you know, to let go as opposed to being encouraged to argue, um, which might be the case in a other, you know, in certain situations, which would call for arguing, um, as opposed to letting go. You know, the second, uh, you know, stage is, you know, the actual, you know, drug session itself, in which case, you know, that is also steered 
in the direction which has been you know, set up uh, in the first you know, phase, the educational and the um, indoctrination phase. Um, you know, so certain music is played to evoke certain emotional responses and not others, uh, which is a very important issue, which isn't being addressed all that well. I mean, that, that music is being studied, but why that music, uh, as opposed to other music, isn't really being investigated very carefully. Um, and the you know, final stage is to integrate what just took place. Um, you know, you know how to interpret what just went on and its impact. You know, downstream over the next days, weeks, months, or years. Uh, you know how to understand it. You know how to you know deal with any questions that might come up. You know how to apply the insights uh, in your everyday life, which is probably the biggest problem that both most rec recreational psychedelic users and those uh, that uh, participate in therapeutic studies need to face, you know, which is, you know, how to apply those insights. Um, the you know, thing that I tell people uh, when I say, well, you know, what do I do now? Uh, or, you know, how do I you know, put this into effect in my everyday life? The thing I tell people, you know, which is just, you know, kind of, you know, general at first blush, but um, is to uh, you know is is to engage yourself in activities or you know do things that remind you of that state, the you know positive aspects anyway. You know, like you know, for example, if you, you know, had an enlightenment experience, you would want to then engage yourself in activities related to the enlightenment experience. Uh, you might want to begin, you know, meditating within a religious stream that emphasizes enlightenment. Uh, you might want to uh, work in a field or study, uh, uh, you know, discipline that engages the mind in a way that you know, mimics or attempts to approximate the enlightened state. Uh, you would, you know, want to learn ways of being with people and the outside world and yourself, which you know, mimic the enlightened state that you may have gotten a glimpse of on the drug. You know, so you want to live a more you know, psychedelicized life, which means you, you, you need to occupy, uh, to engage yourself with you know, psychedelic things, at least things which appear or feel or you know resonate with you as um you know psychedelic there there's this there is a tension in the psychedelic community and there's really two tensions one is between positioning these drugs as pharmaceuticals and that they should be used in a pharma, you know, in a, a medical setting, whether it be the way you administered them in a hospital or in a clinic or, or, or with some medical intent in mind versus making sure that these are just available to anybody who wants access to them. What do you think? Should these be the same way that cannabis is being positioned for adult use, that anybody who wants it should have access to DMT or LSD, or should they really be looked at more from a, a medical perspective? Well, you know, that's, you know, the age-old conundrum, 
uh, it was first articulated in the West, anyway, as the debate between you know, the lyrics, you know, Tim Leary you know, versus Aldous Huxley. Right. You know, Tim was uh, an egalitarian individual, said everybody should be able to do whatever they want with whatever. You know, so, you know, Tim was all for widespread availability of you know, psychedelics. He believed, you know, they were inherently beneficial. Um, and uh, any problems could be overcome uh, or there weren't any problems in the first place. As opposed to Aldous Huxley, who said only the elite uh, sh- you know, should be able to you know, take these drugs under very uh, you know, carefully monitored you know, conditions, either you know, religious or psychiatric. Um, yeah, you know, so that you know, debate is continuing to be played out. Um, you know, look at what occurred in you know Denver and in Oakland. You know, uh, in you know Denver, uh, you know botanical or you know psilocybin you know mushrooms were you know decriminalized. I mean, in Oakland, you know every botanical you know psychedelic was you know similarly you know decriminalized. You know, so that's you know kind of an example of you know Tim's approach being made more manifest. Yeah, but it, but but Oregon's got a ballot initiative next year saying that for psilocybin, you have to go to a doctor, you have to be administered in a clinic. They're looking at it much more from the medical structure than than what you described and what happened in in Oakland, in Berkeley. Um, I think Chicago as well recently um, passed a, a uh, an ordinance about the decriminalization. Um, what is your take? I mean, you know, you are eminently positioned to have an opinion um do you have one of course uh yeah i've been you know thinking about this you know from the get-go uh like you know should people you know like you know what is the best way for the most people to get the most you know benefit and the least harm from psychedelic drugs i mean i've been thinking about that since i was 18 years old um you know, I I think it depends. You know, that's probably the the best answer I can give in you know two words or less. Is uh, it it depends. Uh, you want to make sure that you know people are safe, which means that you want to know the you know source of your drug. You want to know that you know they're in good hands. Um, you know, so you would want some you know, kind of you know certification uh, of people who are going to be you know supervising you know drug sessions um, I don't think that at this point just being able to you know get a prescription for psilocybin you know from your orthopedist you know who, who could prescribe it if they're rescheduled um, and you know go to your Walgreens and you know pick up uh, five grams of you know psilocybin mushrooms and you know, then go home and be expected to uh, take care of yourself. Um, I, I don't think you know, that's going to be happening in the, anytime soon. So, I, I think it'll be important if you want to optimize the effects is to is to establish places and you know and um, staff to you know supervise you know people's um, you know monitored sessions. Well, and that leads to the other tension that's in the community, right, which is the tension between those who want 
to do exactly what you said, have a, a, a medical structure, but provide these drugs for free versus people like um, Compass and Atai and Field Trip who are looking to to treat this as a commercial venture. Um, do you have any thoughts on on you know the the for profit model versus the not for profit model? Um, well, I mean, obviously, the for you know profit model uh, has a different you know set of goals, you know, different you know set of stakeholders uh, than the non profit or the you know the more uh, altruistic model. I. Uh, I mean, you would want to, you know, pay, you know, for the service, but you wouldn't want to have to pay, you know, like a thousand dollars, you know, donate, you know, donations appreciated, um, you know, if the staff, you know, um, you know, this, you know, kind of, you know, ties into the staffing issue, like how well qualified, how expensive do you want your staff to be? You know, um, do you want them to be, you know, peers more or less that have, you know, taken maybe a 20-hour course? Or do you want them to be MDs or do you want them to be MDs and psychiatrists? Well, you know, what about, you know, clinical, you know, psychologists? Um, you know, so that would uh, determine the fee structure even in a non-profit, you, know, you know, setting. Uh, uh, if you're going to be making your living or spending a majority of your time, as a staff person, you'd want to get reimbursed according, you know, to your own uh, standards. So, I think it's going to be a, a, a spectrum of clinical, you know, settings, especially in areas which have decriminalized these drugs. Um, if you're only going to get these drugs through a prescription, then uh, you're looking at the more, you know, bio, the more, you know, bio, um, medical, uh, end of the spectrum, you know, where you would, you know, probably want more highly qualified, you know, people to, you know, supervise, um, you know, sessions, uh, you know, I, good. I mean, I agree with you, and I think personally that there, there, there is going to be a mix between the two models, between the the USONA model, which is being done out of the University of Wisconsin, looking to create access to these medicines for free, versus you know what Field Trip is going to be doing, which is launching a series of initially ketamine clinics and then um, psilocybin when they can. You know, Mike Tyson has been really talking about his experience with a different form of DMT called 5-MeO-DMT. And there is a, a large underground community of people who are facilitating access to these molecules. Are you familiar with, the, with 5-MeO and, and do you have any opinions about it versus the NM-DMT that you worked with? Yeah, it's a more potent milligram basis. Uh, a full, you know, dose of smoked DMT is you know 45 to you know 50 milligrams. A you know full dose of you know 5 methoxy DMT is closer to three to five milligrams. Uh, the acute effects are different. You know, generally, I mean, just you know, kind of broadly speaking, the you know 5 methoxy DMT effect is more of the white light, ego death, mystical, unitive kind of experience, uh, you know, not as 
frequently do people report encounters with beings uh, as compared to a DMT, uh, which you know, rarely gives you that white light experience and is more you know, highly interactive and, and relational. Um, you know, so it's also, you know, needs to be either smoked or injected. It's quite fast acting, short duration of action. You know, so, you know, much of what I, oh, it's also endogenous. It seems to be also made in the human body as well as appearing in the plant kingdom. Um, you know, so I, I, th I think a lot of what we were talking about, you know, DMT as a therapeutic agent applies also to, you know, 5-methoxy DMT. You would be expecting, you know, different effects. So you would want to, you know, capitalize on the influence or, or you know, the interaction of the, uh, you know, therapeutic effects you're looking for and the uh, acute, you know, subjective effects that you're going to be, uh, you know, encountering most likely. Um, you know, so you would, you know, tailor the drug for your desired outcome. You wouldn't be using, you know, DMT, let's say, if you want a white light experience. And you wouldn't be using, you know, 5-methoxy DMT if you wanted to, you know, uh, you know, do some, you know, problem solving, you know, with the, um, um, with the beings. Um, you, you know, one of the things, you know, that I've heard of both on the Internet and from my own acquaintances and, you know, from emails, you know, that I get is uh, pretty intense. 5-methoxy DMT, which isn't as commonly reported with. Wait, can you re can you repeat can you repeat that? Because I think you broke up for a second. So you in the emails you were saying. Yeah, you know, uh, you know th the scuttlebutt on the internet, you know, nowadays, and you know the you know, the research you know, papers which are you know coming out describing recreationally 5-methoxy DMT, and the emails I've gotten acquaintances, you know, that I know that have smoked, you know, 5-methoxy DMT is uh, flashbacks are a lot more, you know, commonly reported with that drug as compared to reported with, you know, DMT. And those, you know, flashbacks usually are in the, you know, form of anxiety, uh, you know, panic attacks, you know, fear, horror, dread, you know, terror. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it can go, you know, you know, these can recur for a long time. I just heard from somebody from the East Coast whose, you know, wife smoked, you know, 5-methoxy. And um, she's still having problems like two, three months down the road with these uh, nocturnal panic attacks. Uh, and you just don't, you know, hear that with, you know, DMT. Um, the first, you know, time I heard about, you know, 5-methoxy, you know, DMT, you know, was at a, you know, conference at, you know, the Esalen Institute in the early 1980s. And, uh, you know, psychiatrist friend of mine smoked, you know, 5-methoxy DMT, was blown to bits in the white light and was, you know, driving home on the Pacific Coast Highway a couple of days later and just, you know, just, you know, fell over. He he lost control of the steering wheel. Oh, my wheel, God. Flopped over to the, you know, the, uh, you know to the passengers, you know, you know, you know. Fortunately, it was a straightaway, no oncoming traffic. He you know, righted himself immediately. But uh, still, I mean, that's not you know something that you hear is the case with uh, you know DMT. Um, I, I think perhaps the reason people are you know having these flashbacks with you know 5-methoxy 
is it's way easier to overdose on your 5-methoxy. Uh, it's not much raw material that you have to get into your lungs. You know, so I've heard you know, people take t twice as much as a full dose, three, four times as much. Um, and it's quite you know, difficult to inhale vaporized DMT to the extent that's required for a breakthrough experience. So it's much more, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, much more, you know, difficult, you know, to overdose on smoked, you know, DMT. It's almost 20 years or, or it's more now, more than 20 years since you did your research. Um, I've got two questions for you. Looking back, what would you have done differently? And then do you have any interest in restarting your research? Well, the main thing that I got you know, wrong with my study was staffing. Um, I didn't you know, have a team around me uh, that I could really rely on, uh, that were peers, that could give me feedback, that could work with me with the volunteers, you know, supervise the you know, sessions with me. Uh, just you know, give me you know, feedback. Uh, I was a lone ranger out there. Is very, very isolated. Um, I, you know, got a lot of emotional support from my wife at the time and my friends, my spiritual, you know, community. Um, but you know, uh, institutionally, academically, uh, my chairman had no idea what I was doing. The research unit had no idea what I was doing, or you know, understanding what it was I was doing. And they couldn't, you know, provide the uh, the peer review, you know, that uh, you know that I really needed. Uh, and once I got my studies going, the long promised, you know, migration of my colleagues from around the country never quite materialized. You know, so I was kind of held, you know, holding the stick. Uh, I, you know, wasn't especially, you know, wedded, you know, to the you know, psychopharmacology brain chemistry you know, model for a long-term uh, view of the drugs. I was more interested in applying um, them to, you know, therapeutic or spiritual ends. You know, but a one-man operation couldn't really, you know, pull that off. I mean, you know, look at the Hopkins team, the NYU team. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of people, it's, you know, social workers, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists. Um, yeah, you know, so... The main thing is the team, the the uh, staffing issue. I didn't quite uh, anticipate the, the you know need for that, and uh, I didn't quite you know marshal it in time. And if you had the opportunity, would you do more research? Uh, would I do more research? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, you've got a name. Tim Ferriss is throwing money around, you know, like crazy. You know, if you had the opportunity, if somebody came to you and said, I got 10 million bucks, would you, you know? Well, you know, 10 million probably is too much. You know, 6 million was the number I was always, you know, batting around. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, you know... You know, if 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 somebody gave me six million dollars and they said, you know, this money is to put together the you know center of your dreams, uh, I would do it. 
And what would you study? Would you stay with DMT or would you look at other things? What, what would the, the, you think your focus would be? Well, I'm a, yes. you know, so it would be a multidisciplinary, um, which would mean, you know, psychopharmacology. Let's look at how these drugs affect the brain and how different drugs affect the brain and the mind, you know, differently. You know, there's uh, the classical drugs, the ones that are, you know, found in nature. <clears throat> and uh, there's, you know, synthetic ones, you know, the, and, uh, you know, the, you know, synthetic ones, you can, uh, you know, tailor make to impact certain receptors and uh, uh, and skip other ones. Uh, you know, so the what's it's what's called structure activity studies. You compare or you correlate the structure of the chemical with the uh, activity, which is the you know, subjective effects and you know the biological responses. Um, I would be interested in the you know, psycho, the you know, psycho, the you know, psychotherapeutic um, applications, um, and I wouldn't just be throwing a you know drug effect at everyone under the sun, which is kind of what is a you know tendency in this uh, early stage of applying these you know drugs effects to you know psychotherapeutic ends. You know, the most uh, striking example is the mystical experience, you know, model uh, that's, you know, come out of Hopkins. You know, they are, you know, positing that a mystical experience is, is you know, therapeutic. You, you know, so, you know, what conditions are hard to treat? Let's throw the mystical experience at it and we'll expect, you know, some benefit. But... The mystical experience isn't the only type of uh, big psychedelic experience, you know, which is possible. You know, so the interactive relational experience that's more common with, you know, DMT um, might be as, you know, beneficial um, as the mystical unitive one, depending on the condition, the inclination of the patient, the training of, you know, the therapist. Um, you know, there are spiritual applications can these drugs enhance spiritual progress um, and I think when you start to look at the you know, beneficial effects of these drugs you want to look more at the mechanisms of you know how they affect the desired outcome you know the, the, the mystical experience is only one type of outcome which is primed by all the pre in session educational and uh the uh, expectation building uh, that occurs, be, you know, before the actual, you know, drug session, um, you know, so you 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 look at the mystical model with the preparation and the desired outcome model with the preparation and you know, the desired outcome. You you know look at how many conditions are improved by the administration of you know, psychedelics, eating disorders, OCD, addictions, alcoholism, tobacco dependence, eating disorders, depression, end-of-life despair. You start to think of these drugs as, you know, panaceas. And, you know, panaceas work through the placebo effect. And, you know, there's a lot of interest now in the placebo effect, you know, the biology, the way in which, which the activation of the placebo effect 
mobilizes our inherent you know healing uh, you know mechanisms immune endocrine uh, stem cells uh, all kinds of inherent you know healing mechanisms which are activated through the placebo response you know so if you know psychedelics are, are they appear to be you know panacea like they will basically do whatever you want them to do if you prime the pump that way they'll make you into a you know dedicated you know serial killer if you you know take them with Charles Manson they'll make you an enlightened individual if you you know take them in a you know different kind of a setting if you you know combine them with a mindfulness you know meditation retreat your mindfulness meditation will be supercharged so i think these drugs are actually super placebos and that's why we mm. are, are you know seeing you know this huge spectrum of effects of whatever you're looking for you'll find whatever you want them to do they will do you know so i think you know rather than you know selling an effect of the drug like an experience i think we need to bore down a little more closely into you know, how they do you know so many things for you know so many different people um in a uh, you know very effective manner, um, which would then make us look more carefully at their you know, placebo enhancing properties, and well, to you know turn those to any condition where a placebo effect will enhance your outcome, like you know chemical you know like you know chemotherapy you know for cancer, like if you're in a great mood and more optimistic. And you're, you know, marshalling your own, you know, healing responses. That can't help, it seems to me, but, you know, buttress or augment the efficacy of, you know, cancer, you know, chemotherapy, uh, you know, psychosomatic, you know, conditions like asthma or skin reactions, you know, connect, you know, collagen, you know, vascular autoimmune diseases. Yeah. yeah. Andrew Weil, Andrew Weil says that he took, um, when he was at Harvard, um, he took LSD and he had been, you know, allergic to cats. And after his trip, he was no longer allergic. I mean, that is the, you know, a perfect example of, of I think, what you're describing in terms of the placebo effect. And, you know, people just dismiss, oh, it's just the placebo effect. Isn't the point of any of these things to actually get the, the end result? I mean, the point of any medication is to to, to treat an underlying issue. And if... By taking a psychedelic, what you're doing is allowing your your body and your mind to work more in harmony to treat it itself without an external and another external drug. Then that's better, I, I would think. You know, it's it, it's it's a lot you know larger than you know simply you'll have a particular experience on these drugs and that's curative. I think that's kind of a blunt edged instrument. You know, because, you know, what happens if you don't have that experience? Uh, do you, uh, well, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, if if you're primed to have a particular kind of experience and you don't, then you might, you know, feel like a, you know, failure and end up even worse off than you were before. And is that, is that a function of, of your set, your mindset going into the experience? Like if you go into the experience with a clear intention, th that, that, 
my understanding is that has a, a stronger impact on the outcomes if you do the integration work after than if you're just going into it going, eh, let's see what happens. It's a you know, combination of things. It's the expectation of the person, their experiences, their goals, their hopes. That's, uh, you know, that's what you would be, you know, be calling the set. Um, you know, but it also uh, relates you know, to the setting, you know, which is the expectations of those that are giving you the drug. Um, you know, the Johns Hopkins at NYU papers a few years ago describing psychotherapy, you know, terminally ill. If you look in the you know, supplemental you know, materials uh, that were uh, included in the paper that you know, came out you know, from the Hopkins group, you know, there was a you know, suicide in their, their group. And uh, they, you know, say, well, it was a low dose of drug, so it wasn't the drug, you know. But I spoke with someone who's got, you know, firsthand, you know, knowledge of that patient, and what is the case is that that patient, you know, given a you know medium or a lowish you know dose of the drug, uh, 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 you know, did not have a mystical experience, which everybody was. You know, saying you have a mystical experience and you'll no longer be depressed about dying. You'll accept your death with equanimity. You know, your pain levels may go down. Your use of narcotics may go down. Your depression may improve. You know, but, you know, and that's all, you know, tied into the curative and healing powers of the mystical experience. Well, this, you know, poor you know, lady, you know, got a low dose of drug. You know, didn't have a mystical experience felt like a fan ended up, you know, killing herself within, you know, two weeks. You know, so I think the let's give you the drug and you know, see what happens, that's not such a bad way of giving, you know, psychedelics. Um, if, you've got, you know, if you've got experienced clinicians uh, in the room with that person. Can I ask a personal question? And you don't have to answer this. And if you don't, I'll just cut it out. Um, what is your experience with psychedelics? Do you mind talking about that? Um, well, I work a lot more time than we've got. I mean, <laughs> take all the time you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I've, a few months ago, um, I did an interview with Graham Hancock and, uh, I spoke about my experience using you know, DMT, uh, my you know, first exposure to it, uh, under the watchful eye of you know, Terrence McKenna in 1986. Um, yeah, you know, so uh, I do you know, talk about that experience. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it completely you know, shook me to my core. I mean, I was uh, studying you know, melatonin and the pineal gland at, at that time, and I was, you know, you know, pontificating about the spiritual characteristics of the pineal, and I, you know, gave a talk at a conference where, you know, and he said, yeah, yeah, I encountered these beings uh, that coalesced out of this, you know, waterfall of flaming colors. And they kind of were three feet high, you know, four feet high, you know, just a half a dozen of them, not many. 
uh, and they just, you know, bored into me this question, you know, now do you see, now do you see, over and over and over again. Um, and, uh, you know, I came down <laughs> and uh, to myself, what was that? <laughs> and, uh, you, uh, you know, changed you know, career you know, directions within, within maybe three months. I, you know, dropped the melatonin work, dropped the pioneer work and began working on the DMT study. You know, this was 1988. Do, do you see, what were the lessons that you've personally learned from your psychedelic experiences? And then do you still look to these molecules on occasion to revisit those lessons if you're feeling like they might be slipping? Um, well, you asked about other you know, psychedelic um, you know, there is a legal ayahuasca church, you know, based in you know, Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a, you know, for a few months, 2013 to 2014. And I, you know, drank a lot of ayahuasca, you know, with that church, completely legal, completely above board. Um, yeah, you know, so I, you know, got a fair exposure over a short period of time to ayahuasca. Uh, and of course, you know, um, I dabbled in college as most of us did. Um, but it's been, you know, it's it's been you know some time uh, since taking a psychedelic. Um, you know, at a certain point, you learn to remind yourself of that state uh, without the drug. Although I think that you know varies from person to person. And at various stages of one's life to other stages. Like, you know, Ram Das always used to say, I would take a big dose of LSD once a year just to recalibrate and, you know, check in. Uh, you know, for some you know, people, that's a great idea. And, you know, for other people, it isn't necessary. Um, you know, once I started to study the Hebrew Bible and kind of get into the prophetic mind uh, and really study the text, um, you know, that reminds me of... Uh, particular way of <clears throat> understanding reality and our relationship to it that is, you know, psychedelic enough for me, at least, you know, for the time being. Um, what are you working on now? Well, I got quite ill in 2014. Uh, I got pneumonia and then a you know, super bug and uh, <clears throat> I was quite sick and it took me a long time to recuperate. And the healthcare that I got in the in a you know small town you know southwest, you know, wasn't that great. Uh, so I you know took a lot of notes, and I thought if I survive this, I'm going to you know fictionalize it slightly, and and uh, you know publish it. Yeah, you know. So my first you know novel came out in March. It's called you know, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. It's an account of you know my alter ego's adventures with being quite sick and then, uh, you know, recovering. Uh, you know, so that came out in March. Uh, and I'm working on a, you know, uh, of other writing projects, like another installment in the, you know, Joseph Levy story. I'm also, you know, fascinated by the character of Abraham in the Bible and have been taking a lot of notes about him for a number of years and hope to, uh, you know, see if I can make a stab at, you know, biblical, you know, fiction. Uh, you know, a you know more sophisticated maybe or an uh, upper crust or 
approach, you know, compared to their red tent, but of that ilk, you know, like, uh, you know, fictionalized expansion on, you know, biblical narratives and especially around the, you know, figure of Abraham, the first, uh, you know, the first Hebrew, um, and and the first and the first person to trip, right? I mean, that's how you you just you just I think you've described him as as his his mystical experiences may be related to DMT. In the prophetic states book I wrote in 2014, DMT and uh, the soul of prophecy, I speculate that you know certain aspects of the prophetic experience experience, you know, the visions and other voices, you know, could be, you know, mediated through the release of endogenous DMT, you know, not through any plants or drugs that the, you know, prophetic figures took, but, you know, produced in, in, you know, the human body. You know, prophecy, as you know, I understand it is any spiritual experience that is, you know, had by any figure in the Bible. You know, so strictly speaking, the first interaction between man and humans, uh, or you know, between you know humans and God, was uh, a a, a uh, an example of you know the prophetic experience. Uh, you know, so when God speaks to Adam and Eve and says, "Be fruitful and multiply," that's God speaking to humans, and humans hear it. You know, so that is a you know prophetic experience. You know, so anybody that speaks to God or his angels is inspired, uh, has visions, voices, out-of-body experiences. Those people are experiencing, uh, you know, prophecy. Um, you know, so the character of Abraham, you know, lived a you know, prophetic life. He was the first Hebrew, the first Jew. Uh, you know, but it was you know, before the laying down of the Mosaic Law with the Ten Commandments and the you know, precepts, you know, the meets vote. Uh, you know, those were all laid down by Moses. You know, before, you know, Moses, you know, there wasn't any law. I mean, Abraham, as the first Jewish person, you know, followed the law, you know, so they believe without uh, it being written down. It was intuitive. It was as a result of his ongoing relationship with God rather than his uh, adhering to a doctrine or a text. Um, you know, so I'm you know, fascinated by the idea of the first really hardcore Jewish, you know, prophet and his life and, you know, how he, you know, you know, decided to do the things that he decided to do. Hmm. Well, we've taken, I've, we, it's no we, it's just me. I've taken enough of your time. I just want to ask one final question. You know, the 60 Minutes recently um, issued or did a segment on psychedelics. The Today Show recently did a, a segment on psychedelics. You've seen coverage of all of the the work being done at Johns Hopkins and the six, $17 million that Tim Ferriss brought to bear. What is the one story that you think the media is missing about these medicines? We, you know, there's they're not doing it in a tongue-in-cheek fashion. It's not a lot of, you know, images of the 60s, but what are they missing? What What is everybody missing? Um, well, they're, 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 they're skipping over one thing. Um, and they're you know missing something else. Uh, the, the skipping over is you know their dark side. Um, their you know benefits, potential benefits are being glorified, hmm. and their ad and you know their adverse effects 
are you know being you know minimized. You know, for example, you know their benefits are being couched in frames like, like mystical experience, and you know the ad and the you know the adverse effects are being you know downgraded to challenging experiences. You know, like for example, my you know, drip irrigation system, and it's you know leaking everywhere. I mean, that's a challenging experience. <laughs> you know, permanent. You know, permanent psychosis, which can occur in a vulnerable person who takes you know, psychedelics, isn't a challenging experience, even in the questionnaire and in you know discussions. Um, well, there's two you know, potential downsides. You know, one is you know the adverse effects. Uh, if you know somebody isn't screened adequately, you know, let's say that they're. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, teetering on a, you know, psychosis, for example. Uh, they uh, are getting paranoid. They're not eating so much. They can't quite, you know, tell if what they are hearing is real or not. Um, they're secluding. Yeah, you wouldn't want that kind of a person to take LSD. I mean, chances are it would flip them into, a, you know, full-blown psychosis. Um, you know, that's the most extreme, you know, case of, uh, an adverse effect, um, in, uh, you know, an, an acute, um, adverse effect, um, you, you know, the other, um, adverse effect, uh, well, I mean, there's, there's a slew, um, you know, one of the potential, um, adverse effects is the, um, adverse effect of the model, uh, in which the drugs are being given, uh, so, for example, you might not attain a mystical state in a mystical state-oriented, you know, research you know, center, and you feel you know, like a failure and end up killing yourself. You know, so that's an adverse effect of the you know, setting in a way, interacting you know with the acute you know drug effect. Um, I think also too, if we're going to make these drugs more available, we'll need to uh, prepare for you know fallout. On their misuse, uh, for you know, you know, for example, uh, you know, psychedelics are being used by these, you know, these, you know, far right, ultra, you know, nationalist, you know, vigilante uh, organizations to, uh, you know, cement their belief, to uh, make them, you know, dedicated followers of a particular worldview, like you know, Manson, you know, did in his, you know, followers, the model of you know, helter skelter, uh, and they're still being used in that way. Um, uh, so, if if for example, some crazy thing is done by some crazed person who is a member of a group that uses you know psychedelics in you know such a manner, uh, it's going to be important to you know differentiate between. You know, this is not an inherent effect of the drug. It's just the way it, in which it's being used. Um, you know, so that's uh, uh, an issue um, regarding a more, you know, balanced, you know, less starry-eyed approach to how these drugs are being mainstreamed right now. Well... I think that was great, and I really appreciate your time. Um, 
and as soon as I know when this is going to publish, um, which would probably be in about a month or so, I'll let you know. Um, is there a Twitter account or some place that I can point people to so that they can get access to your books or follow you? You know, I don't know if you have a social media presence. Um, yeah, I have a, a personal page and a you know, public page on Facebook. Um, and I have a website, uh, com. Okay, great. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I, you know, correspond with a lot of people uh, all the time. A few emails every day from folks who want to, you know, you know talk things over. Um, you can buy my books from me through my website, uh, which I would then inscribe and sign. Uh, so... You know, that's an advantage of uh, contacting me directly through my site. Um, okay. Oh, you know, one extra you know point about the media is uh, you know they're you know kind of skipping over you know the adverse effects uh, question, but I think uh, in their you know rush to glorify these drugs, uh, they are. I guess skipping over the more important questions about you know you, you know how they work, uh, you know rather than that they work through you know causing a mystical state, uh, they they you know may work through the enhancement of the placebo mechanism, but that's kind of a you know more sophisticated approach to things more than uh, you know more you know so than the mainstream media and your average your reader would want to take on. That is perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate, I truly appreciate you taking the time with me. A special thanks to Dr. Rick Strassman, who is, as I hope you heard, one of the most interesting and important people in terms of psychedelic research. Uh, there is, you can reach out to him at Rick Strassman, that's R-I-C-K, S-T-R-A-S-S-M-A-N.com. And if you haven't read his book, The DMT, The Spirit Molecule, it would be uh, wise for you to do so. As always, if you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore greenrush or on Instagram at the greenrush underscore podcast. As always, drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback and guest ideas. And please don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.